Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 8, and we'll come back to that in just a minute. But I want to do something kind of dangerous. I'm going to try to give you a little art lesson tonight. And um, I don't get a chance to be able to speak a lot on Wednesday nights. Maybe that's intentional. And, um, but uh, I... I know that Easter begins, or is, is Easter Sunday this year is a, is a month from tomorrow, and I always kind of really try to get into the Easter season to think about all the things that happened on each day of Passion Week, to be able to, of the events leading up to that. Um, it's a great study every year. Sometimes we just kind of think, well, I know all that. No, we don't. And, and so I want to show you something tonight that you may have never seen. If you have, don't remind me. And, um, and I'm going to wander up here to the screen and kind of tell you a little bit. Okay, so go ahead and turn that on if you would, please. I'm going to use a blue pointer. This is the material that uh, Dr. Studer's braces were made from. <laughs> it's actually my lightsaber. Okay, actually, can you dim the house lights down a little bit so we can see this a little clearer? This painting was by an Italian uh, painter, a very famous Italian painter by the name of Antonio Cesare. And this painting was done in 1871. And there's a reason why I like this painting. Uh, obviously, the situation where Pilate is on his platform, he's looking over to the people, and the painting is entitled... Uh, Ecce homo, which means in Latin, behold the man. And we can kind of see that in the painting. But there's one thing different about Censeri's painting that is different from all other paintings dealing with this subject of Pilate presenting the Lord in front of the people. And that is the perspective. All the other paintings that you see about Pilate and Lord Jesus, you see it from the front. They look at his face, you see the Lord. But this is from the perspective as if I was somebody in Pilate's, either his household or his court, or one of his assistants or whatever, and I'm looking at this from that perspective. And the reason that that's important is because everybody's face but one person, you only see the side or the back of the head. And so you see, the, obviously, the center of the picture is with uh, Pilate up here and looking over the people, now, he's in the center of the picture, but he's actually kind of giving the, the attention, not to himself, but giving the attention to the Lord Jesus up here, who's in the red robe, and it's red for a reason. It's red showing his royalty, and that's why he said, well, he's the king of the Jews. That's what you said he was. And so he's presenting him there, but part of it's been torn away by this slave over here, and uh, to showing him more of a, hump, a humiliated state. And the Lord's just standing there with the crown of thorns, on his head, but then you see almost every other person of society in this picture. Because you see, first of all, here's, here's a guy, what do you think his occupation was? Just by looking at his dress. Is he a ruler? Is he a lawyer? What is he? He's a slave. He's got a spear. He's kind of plainly dressed for what he has on, but he just has just a lower portion of his but he obviously is a look of not necessarily a, a highly educated individual, but he's tough. So he's there to make sure the Lord doesn't run away. 
But then you've got other people here. Here you've got a Roman soldier in the back. And all you, all you see is the side of their faces. And this guy here, he's much more nicely dressed, more regal. He's probably some kind of an associate to Pilate that's educated, an assistant, maybe a lawyer, whatever. We don't know. But obviously in his appearance, he looks very different than this guy. Then on the other side, you see this fellow here. He looks also very educated, very sophisticated, but he's got a scroll in his hand. So obviously he's probably some kind of a scribe, a lawyer, scribe. He's writing down, he's in charge of making sure everything that he accounts for and writes out and makes sure it's all done legally. And then you see over here on the far side, you see these other two guys. We don't exactly know what they're representing, but they're nicely dressed and uh, they're there watching over, making sure that everything doesn't get out of control. But then you see the other two. You see Pilate's wife here. This is the only person that Antonio Cesare lets you see her face. Because this is important. If you remember in Matthew's Gospel, that she goes to Pilate and says, don't have anything to do with this man. And she had these dreams about him. So you see that in this situation, Pilate's been caught and he's now dealing with the Lord and he's scared of the people and she can't stand it any longer. So she turns her back. And she's walking away, and she puts her hand probably on her assistant, a maid that was taking care of her, who's looking over the situation, but uh, Pilate's wife has her hand on her shoulder to kind of steady her because she's upset by the proceedings that are going on. Now, when I look at a painting like that, I kind of get a chance to be able to see the broad spectrum of society in that picture. And I see myself up there as if I was standing there, and I was looking on this situation of this picture. I have it on my computer, and it's on my computer every year for about the month and a half leading up to Easter. So I look at it every day and just think to myself, if I were there, would I be one of these people in the crowd? You see this myriad of faces in the crowd. You see people up here on the rooftop, and they're all the way down this corridor, this street down here, and they're wondering what Pilate is going to, Pilate is going to do with the Lord Jesus. And so that perspective kind of helps me to understand a little bit more learn, learning about Pilate, learning more about society, learning about the fact that he, the, the painter gives us a little bit of an idea of what every person in society would have been like. Thank you for bringing the lights back. And I'll put this back and let's go to Luke chapter 8. Hope that was interesting. And uh, maybe to, as we think a little bit more about Easter to kind of help us to be able to not just let the holiday go past. Not just let the story of, of the Lord's crucifixion, burial. Remember, the Apostle Paul told us what the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. He said, I'm going to tell you the gospel, how that Christ died, was buried, and rose again the third day. Each part of that is important. Sometimes we just kind of think, oh, it's just a resurrection. No. It's Christ's death, and, or Christ's uh, he was crucified and he was buried and then he rose again and so when you think about that as we, as we go through each part of Easter time to be able to think on all those aspects of what Easter means to us and I think it will give you kind of a renewed understanding appreciation for the seriousness of what happened there and just to think how the Lord would be if he were standing there in front of the crowds as Pilate says Ecce homo, behold the man he said that in Latin, but he wouldn't have said it in Latin then, but maybe not, maybe he did. 
And uh, but at the same time, it's the idea, behold the man. And that's what the people were seeing that day. Okay, Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Now, Luke chapter 8 is another account of what we also see in Matthew 13 with the, the very simple story that the Lord Jesus told about the sower and the seed. Jesus often compared our physical senses to our spiritual, the spiritual ones. For the last several chapters, um, I would say last several, last couple of chapters in Luke, verses chapter 6, 7, you find the word blindness or the people are blind. So you see that, that reference made. But here, the emphasis changes in chapter 8, where now he's using words like hear or listen. In fact, those two words occur nine times in this chapter. And verse 18 reminds us, take heed, therefore, how ye hear. Notice what I'm telling you. Because from this point forward in the Gospel of Luke, the attention is much less on the miracles that the Lord was doing, but on his teaching. Verse 4 tells us that there was great crowds that were gathered. So let's see what the Bible says in beginning of verses one, verse 1 of chapter 8. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, uh, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others which ministered unto him of their substance. Now, that's an interesting idea there, but we'll get that, back to that in just a moment. Maybe, they wanted, maybe these people wanted something for themselves, these great crowds that were there watching what the Lord was doing, listening to what he was saying. Maybe they were looking for something. Maybe they desired to bring friends and relatives to have, uh, somewhat, have the Lord heal them. Maybe they were just coming there just for free entertainment. You know, what, what did you do? I mean, there's no television, there's no Netflix. What do you do? Well, the Lord's there, and you see things that you're not normally accustomed to seeing. You don't understand it, but you're going to be there to witness it. So the Lord taught about the rule of God in their hearts that we're going to look at begin, in, beginning in these verses. Um, and their lives and would become subjects to the kingdom of God. This was a spiritual kingdom he was talking about. And the only way that people entered that kingdom was through faith in Jesus Christ. Now Luke tells us in chapter 7 that Jesus was in Capernaum. He was in Nain, he the widow of Nain. The Pharisee's house, that's Jairus. He's not named here, but he is in Mark's gospel. And this un, in this unknown locality, he had the purpose of ministry that was announced in Luke 4, Verses 43 and 44 tell us that he was to preach throughout the, vi the villages and towns in Galilee. So that was what he was doing, and this is how it's being fulfilled by the time you get to chapter 8. Jesus did not select men exclusively of his followers. It wasn't just men. It's interesting, ladies. You see this passage of Scripture? He talks about the fact that 12 are with him and, and certain women. In Luke's gospel, he shows, and this is interesting, in Luke's gospel, he shows where there's a pair of events, one with a man and other with a woman, that we see all throughout Luke's gospel. For example, Zechariah, Elizabeth, Joseph, Mary, Simeon, Anna, a man with an unclean spirit, and Peter's mother-in-law. These are all parallel to passages together. The sinful woman and Simon the Pharisee in chapter 7. The twelve and the women who supported Jesus in this passage of Scripture in 8. 
the woman with the hemorrhage and Jairus and, and later on in chapter 8, the crippled man or crippled woman and the man with dropsy and edema in chapter 13, the parable of the shepherd and that of the woman in chapter 15, the unjust judge and the persistent widow that we find in chapter 18, the scribes who devour widows' houses and the widow who gave all she had to the Lord. Women played a vital role in Luke's gospel. They were the first ones to the empty tomb. They accompanied the Lord and apparently provided financial support. Did you see that in this passage that we just read? Because in verse 4, it tells us, verse 3 rather, and many others which ministered unto him with their substance. So we find that we're, there were some prominent women, especially you find this woman that was very prominent. The Bible talks about Joanna, uh, the wife of, of a servant, uh, of a steward, somebody important in Herod's a realm, and she followed the Lord and probably had means to be able to help support his ministry. Now, the Lady Susanna that we see in this passage, the only time her name is mentioned in Scripture, and so we don't know a whole lot about her. So what I want you to see is this parable that's coming up. It begins in verse 4. And this is kind of the crux of what we're talking about this evening. And when much people were gathered together, there came unto him out of every city, he spake a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some, of the, some fell by the wayside and was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. And some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away, because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And others fell in good ground and sprang up and bare fruit a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Remember, I told you about the fact that you... A lot of other things, hearing, hearing. And the disciples asked him, saying, and this is interesting. All right, let's give common language. What do you mean, Lord? They didn't understand this. And so what we're going to look at, first of all, is this teaching on this parable that we see um, with the sower that's going out to sow. And we're going to understand from this passage of Scripture the impact of verse 15. Skip down to verse 15. And I just wanted to have you come here, and then I'm going to go back to the earlier part. Verse 15. But that on the good ground are they which have an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it, and bring forth fruit with patience. That's a great line. But to understand that, we have to go back to see the beginning of the parable, what the Lord is really trying to say. And we know from being kids in Sunday school the idea of what is the sower and who is the, what is the seed and who is the sower. People who give the gospel, but the seed is always the word of God. So the heart of man here that he's telling you about in verse 15, we kind of know that, as the soil to the seed of the word of God. It's capable of receiving it and bringing forth fruit in it. But unless that seed is sown in it, it will bring forth nothing of value. We must bring the soil and the seed together. The disciples had a hard time understanding this parable that I read to you in verse 8. What do you mean, Lord? What, what's, what are you talking about? And so we get some further explanation. The second thing that we understand in this teaching of the parable is that the success of the seeding is very much according to the nature and temper of the soil. That is the heart. And we know that. The heart has to want the seed and, uh, and take it. And so in that aspect, that's something very important. He has to want the seed and receive it. 
The hard thing is a lot of times that people will grow up in church and they'll hear the gospel and they'll hear the word of God taught and till they're blue in the face and we'll present it by preaching, we'll present it in a program, we'll present it in literature and teaching Sunday school and children's church and camp and everything else. But the problem of it is the heart doesn't want it. It just won't be received very well. So the Bible tells us about this, that some seed fell by the wayside and Satan has the ability to come along and be able to say, I'll kick it away. I'll take it away. I don't want you to hear that. So the person has to want it and then he has to understand what Satan's going to try to do to keep him from hearing it. So the devil is a subtle and spiteful enemy. Always remember that. And the devil will want to come along and say he has the ability to take that word, that seed, right out of our hearts and to ruin the opportunity to be saved. Let's look at verse 12. So those by the wayside, well, let's go to verse 11. And the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear, then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Now, we don't know exactly how that happens. The devil has a way of being able to distract us, to turn our attention away from the Lord. Oh, don't look here. Look here. You've got, you know, reading your Bible. Isn't it interesting when you start reading your Bible, the Lord brings out, when oh, no, I mean, you get to work, you've got to do this. Um, don't forget the car needs to be repaired. You're about out of gas. Um, what have you done for your wife today? Uh, you've got all these things that, that, that come into our attention because we have a tendency to be able, when we hear the word of God, our, our focus goes, and Satan's going along there to be able to say, I'm going to take it away. I'm going to take that word away. So you don't hear it. Especially it happens with the lost. Now notice this. That the, uh, um, the word of God should never be heard carelessly. They end up having contempt for it. Look at verse 13. They on the rock are they, which when they hear, receive the word of God with joy, or see the word with joy, and these have no root, uh, which for a while believe in a time of temptation fall away. So the, those who listen to the word, and they, they listen to it carelessly. Okay, okay, Lord, I'll hear it. I, okay. But they don't really care. They end up having contempt for it. I don't want God's word. I don't want to hear that anymore. I don't want to memorize that. I don't want to obey that. I just learned to have a contempt for it. But then, as you know, you know this passage of scripture, you know what is taught in Matthew 13, that the the pleasures of this life are dangerously choking the word. Verse 14 tells us that. And that which fell among thorns are they which, when they had heard, go forth and are choked and with the cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. So there's obviously situations that come along that the, that the pleasures of this world just get to be too, too interesting to the person and they don't concentrate on serving the Lord. And boy, we can, we've seen generations of people that can go that way. And how easy that can, that can be, and the Lord lets us know. This is, look, the word has to be wanted. And when it's wanted, then it can be received. Don't let Satan kick it away from you. Don't allow the situation to take it carelessly. And when you look at the pleasures around you, don't allow it to distract you, to keep it from, from doing its work in your heart. Wherever Jesus went... The twelve followed him with these faithful women. I always think that's interesting. But you know, the sad part is, is that his family did not. His family basically came to, to check on the Lord Jesus from time to time. 
And we find that in this passage of Scripture and uh, that you're going to see in verse 19. Then came to him his mother and his brethren and could not come to him for the press. In other words, they couldn't get to him because they came in later and all of a sudden there was all these people around and they couldn't get to the Lord. And it was told him by certain that said, thy, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to see thee. And he answered and said unto them, My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. Now that's not an indictment upon Mary and family. What this is saying is this, the Lord is vitally interested in the people he's ministering to right in front of him and to make sure that they hear the word of God and have a chance to respond. So I want you to see a couple things. So what are the terms that describe the heart? Um, the Lord Jesus said, those that are of an honest and good heart, verse 15. What does that mean? Well, a heart that's honest and good, first of all, has to be a heart that's open for repentance and humility and confession. Psalm 51, David cries out, created me a what? A clean heart. And that's not something that people really want to do. We like being able to have our little pockets of the life that we, that the world doesn't see a lot, or our children don't see a lot, or our church doesn't see a lot, but we have pockets of our life that we want to compartmentalize and to say, I don't want the Lord to have to see this. But yet David, when he was confronted with his sin, came forward and said, Lord created me a clean, clean heart. Now, once in a while, my wife will ask me to clean. She knows that I don't clean like she cleans. And, um, and once in a while, she'll say, now, when you did the floor, did you do the baseboard? No. Uh, did you do that? No. And, uh, but that's the way she would like to, to clean. And I might take those things just kind of, and like a lot of men do. And, uh, but at the same time, when we look at it, the Lord is saying, David was saying, Lord, take everything about me and create in me a clean heart. I'm willing to come completely clean with you. You know, once in a while, when my mother was on the bench as a judge, somebody who has been tried for something will come forward and say, I did it. I, I want to make a clean break of the kind of life that I used to live. Most of the time, they want to hide it. And they want to talk themselves out of it or blame somebody else or whatever they want to do. But an, open, an honest and good heart is a heart that's open to repentance and confession. Now, let me share a couple other verses of Scripture that I think are interesting. <clears throat> In Jeremiah chapter 12. Take your Bibles and turn to there. Ooh, this is a goodie. Jeremiah 12. Look at verse 1. The prophet Jeremiah says, Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are, they, are all they happy that deal very treacherously? In other words, he said, Lord, there's a lot of people out here that are hypocrites. So what does he say? The prophet says, thou hast planted them, yea, they have taken root, they grow, yea, they bring forth fruit. Thou art near in thy mouth, far from their reins. But Lord, but thou, O Lord, knowest me, 
Jeremiah says, you know, there's a lot of people out there that claim to know you, and their lives aren't, aren't that way. They're not clean. They're not looking to have their lives completely exposed. But he said, Lord, you know me. Is um, Dr. Tepner in the building? Good. <laughs> Dr. Tepner's my dentist. And he um, may be your dentist. But you know what? I've, I've gotten two reminders from his office that I have missed my cleaning appointment. Most of the time, we do not relish going to the dentist because the dentist is going to find something there. If he doesn't find it, he'll make sure he finds it. And he's going to find a cavity or he's going to find some difficulty and we just don't want, so we just don't go. Okay, I just don't go. But we need to go. I need to go. Dr. Tepner, forgive me. I'll, I'll call you tomorrow. And... Uh, but it's the same thing. It's a situation where we don't like to go because we don't like the problems to be exposed. And Jeremiah is saying, Lord, I'm not like these other guys out here. I know that you know me. And if you know anything about Jeremiah's life, what he had to go through, and the issues and the difficulties of being able to be a prophet of God, it's amazing. That's what he says. It's a great passage of scripture. So, um, when we look at that, we know that uh, those are difficult things. In fact, Psalm 139, verse 23, I have, I have this passage of scripture on a little brass plate that sits in, my, in front of my computer monitor. And it says these words, from Psalm 139, verse 23, where David pleads with God, and he usually never wants to admit to God, but he needs to do this, and he wants to do this. He says, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. And that's amazing passage there that we need to remind ourselves with. Of course, Jeremiah tells us about um, the difficulties that, that uh, our heart is to it. To it. He says, your heart's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who knows it better than you? Okay. So, we've talked about the fact, and we talked about the terms of the heart, and what um, oh, is an honest and good heart? Heart's open to repentance and confession. A heart is also that is fixed upon the Lord and wholeheartedly serving Him. The Bible tells us in Psalm 119, verse 10, He says, With my whole heart have I sought thee, let me not wander from thy commandments. It's a great passage of Scripture. The Lord Jesus told us that the greatest commandment, that we would love the Lord with all of our hearts and serve Him with all of our mind, our soul, and our mind. Luke 10, 27 reminds us of that passage. An honest heart always wants to come before the Lord and show our wholehearted desire to serve and to please Him. We want, we want to be able to say, Lord, here am I. I want to be clean, and I want to do whatever you want me to do. I want to be ready to serve you at any, any cost. So what else is a clean and honest heart? heart that wants and needs the fellowship of God. David was called a man of God after God's own heart, but with all of his sin, and his sin was gross at many times, he had his heart, he had a heart that was crushed with his guilt and desires of being in God's fellowship. I'm so glad that the Bible includes the Psalms 
The Psalms tell us of David's heart. You know, sometimes, you know, men especially, I don't want to be emotional. I'm stoic, tough. Well, David was not that way. David was tough. He was a good soldier, a great leader. But he wept. He was crushed by his own sin. He was discouraged. He was depressed at times. And you see that all through the Psalms. And how many times have we gone to the Psalms when we've been down and we've had difficulties and we've gone to the Psalms to say, okay, David, tell me something that will help me to get through this day. And we're very glad that the Psalms are there. But also that the heart, that honest and clean heart, is a heart that desires to be tender and not hard or arrogant. Okay, Old Testament scholars. What great Judea, uh, king of Judah, the only one, only king of Judah that is described as a person having a tender heart. Josiah. Okay, Josiah is mentioned as a person having a tender heart. The only time that that passage of scripture is, or that, that those words are used. But it was used to identify Josiah. And there's a reason for that. But it's a great, great thing to be, have, be said about you that he was a person of a tender heart. What does that mean? Well, if you look at maybe another translation, it might use the expression, a penitent heart, a heart that's soft, a heart that's sorrowing, a heart that's confessing, a heart that wants to constantly make right before the Lord. So that's very important as well. So you see all those things. And it's amazing when you recognize what a clean heart is, what a good, honest heart is, what a penitent heart is. Those are all things that Luke 8 is describing. So what does an honest heart desire to do? Well, honest heart desires to keep God's word. We sing that wonderful hymn, uh, Hold It Fast or Hold, hold Fast. Well, we hold fast to the truths of the Lord, and to, but we hold that desire to be honest before the Lord. We hold it fast as well. Um, obviously, these are important things. Uh, take your Bibles. Let's go to another Old Testament passage that's interesting. Go to Hosea. Hosea chapter uh, 10. If you look at Hosea, Hosea comes right after Daniel. So if you don't read the Old Testament, right after Daniel comes Hosea. So Hosea chapter 10. These are hard words that Hosea writes about this. So what does the honest heart desire to do? Be single and purpose. Obviously, that's not the way that a lot of the Old Testament kings were. And patriarchs, so forth, they have struggled with this. And Israel was struggling. And Hosea writes to them in verse 1, Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. According to the multitude of his truth, he hath increased in the altars. According to the goodness of the land, they have made goodly images. In other words, they've been blessed. They're doing well. But notice this. Their heart is divided. Now shall they find faulty, he shall break down their altars, he shall spoil their images. For now they shall say, we have no king because we have feared not the Lord. Then, what then shall a king do, for us, do to us? Isn't that sad? That the Israelites would look at their own kingdom and say, we've built up great things. We've got all this, these goodly images. We're, we're blessed. But yet the prophet said, wait a minute. Your heart is divided. And you've been found faulty, and you're breaking. He wants to break down his altars and spoil their images. 
because they don't want to recognize who the Lord is. That's a tough passage. Let's go to one other Old Testament. I've got three minutes. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now, I want to remind you about something. The last time I spoke, for some reason, I ended at 5 after 8. People went to Pastor Phelps and said, we like having him. He ends early. (laughs) I'm not going to give you that privilege tonight. (laughs) Deuteronomy 8. And um, look at verse 11. Deuteronomy, of course, means second law. It's this review that Moses gave to the Israelites to say, once you get into the kingdom, and Joshua's going to take you there, these are the issues you're going to have to deal with. So in chapter 8, beginning verse 11, beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God. Why? Because it's going to be easy for them to forget him. And not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and are full and are built goodly houses and dwell therein. And when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied. And all that thou hast is multiplied. Then thine heart be lifted up. And thou forget the Lord thy God who brought thee up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought when there was no water, who brought forth water out of the rock of Flint. Oof. What is is Moses saying there that the Lord was telling him? Because it's going to be your natural inclination to let your heart go toward the things that you can see. The goodly houses, the, the great crops, the money that you accumulate, and all the prestige that you get for being in these places. And he said, you want to forget me? There's going to be trouble, and you're going to have judgment for it, and you've forgotten me for what I've done for you. Well, I had another whole section, but I'm going to skip all that and just give you a couple things to think about. You think of application. How do you apply what is a good and honest heart? A couple of questions to ask yourself. Do I want God's heart to convict and bring confession of sin in my heart? Do I really want that? Or is that something I only take when I get confronted with it? Do you see godly growth from a steadfast desire to be open with the Lord and his word to digest it and hold on to it? Remember I said at the very beginning that the, that the word is, that the soil and the, and the seed have to want each other. The seed is given out and the soil has to want it. And so our hearts have to have that desire to say, Lord, I want to take it in, to digest it and hold on to it. Question number three is, do we see change in your reaction and understanding of God's word? When God's word convicts you, when you hear it, when you're taught by it, does it mean anything to you? Does it teach you things? That's important. Um, 2 Corinthians 6.11 says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and our heart is wide open. Fourth question. Do you see fruit from your response to God's word? Every Sunday, Pastor, gives an opportunity for people to come and be able to say, this is what God's taught me from this message today or whatever. Do we have a chance to respond? Do we have a desire to respond? And last, we say things to what, you know, I, I love you from the bottom of my heart. 
What's the bottom of your heart? What, then why do we say expressions like, oh, I just said that off the top of my head? What's the top of your head? My top up here is not a whole lot there. And, but we have that expression, the top of your head, the bottom of my heart. But we think to ourselves, there's opposite imagery there that's going on with something that just doesn't mean a whole lot off the top of my head. But the bottom of my heart means something. So do I think to myself, what does the word of God teach me? Do I have that deep desire, that honest, sincere heart that, that without pretense, without being superficial, do I really want the Lord to open me up and say, let me clean you. Let me take the word of God and really expose you to the things you need to learn in the Lord's way and his work. So that's what it is. That's why the Lord tells us verse 15 of Luke 8, that uh, have that clean and honest heart before the Lord, and that'll be a blessing to you. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast. Thank you.